Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. So last week I had the wonderful pleasure, it was so much fun to speak with our fellow non-diet dietitian and my fellow sports dietitian, Edie Schreckengast, who is from the US. So I met Edie last year in the US at uh, our body image workshop and she is so much fun. She is a super, super enthusiastic breath of fresh air and what you'll hear us speaking about here really ranges from Edie's early experiences and how she came across non-diet approach and eating disorder care as her own experience as an athlete and then how she worked her way into being able to integrate these two approaches in her professional life. Edie's got lots of insight, she's very clever and very, very hilarious as you'll figure out. She's um, got a really unique take on how to work with athletes, especially when they struggle in their relationship with food, eating and their bodies. Not only that, she also works um, in the general community as well and she just has some wonderful ideas to share here. So what you'll really hear us talking about is ways in which we can understand the unique aspects of working with active people. So when we're talking about athletes, we're not just talking about professional athletes or even sub-elite level. Really, any active person who engages in sport and activity um, really is at a greater risk of engaging in disordered eating behaviours and disordered behaviours um, around movement and um, uh, and around all, cover, all kinds of other different self-care behaviours, um, simply because they're involved in a community which places additional emphasis on eating and moving and perhaps there's a little bit of the weight or weight control or weight loss talk around them too. So some people self-select into activities where there is a certain amount of weight control involved um, and for others it, they may have vulnerabilities that um, are simply brought to the forefront when they get more involved in certain activities. So Edie and I really dive down right into some of these issues that might present to us um, as everyday dietitians or as non-diet dietitians um, in our practice. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Edie is absolutely fantastic and I would really recommend you check her out across all her social media channels. So without further delay, let's get into speaking with Edie. Hey Edie, it's so wonderful to chat to you today. Thanks for being here. Hi Dee, I am so excited. And um, you're joining me with a glass of vino, are you? <laughs> Malbec, Malbec, very close, yeah. <laughs> Malbec, okay, let's get really specific here. So um, I don't have a coffee, I've got a latte. How's that? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Love it. So it's morning here, evening for you. So that's very culturally and time appropriate for us to be chatting <laughs> all about health at every size and in particular working with athletes. Because I know that's really, that these are two areas that we share in common and we're both really super passionate about. So I can't wait to dive in and just get talking. Yes. So Edie, just to get us started off. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, your training as a dietitian and what, you know, what you've been doing since, since your training. 
Yeah. So first to get started, my interest in nutrition started really, really early. So probably in high school, um, I competed in sports for a long time. So I did cross country track, but I was really, really into soccer. And so uh, unfortunately, two knee surgeries later, that kind of shifted mm -hmm. my focus to just running. And so when I shifted that focus unintentionally, I underfueled, well, I cranked up my training. I got faster that led to a stress fracture and then led to several doctor's visits um, and then which kind of sparked, okay, so didn't have my menses or my period for six months. So under fueling and then more into looking at nutritional, um, I was just under fueling. And so that led my interest really to sports performance. And I got Nancy Clark's um, nutrition guidebook for sports nutrition. Yeah. So the Bible. Yes. Yes. So I got that. And then I went on to college where I was able to run um, D3. And so my passion was still really in nutrition, sports performance, um, and also healing the relationship with my body. Because um, I felt at the time um, that I didn't have or I wasn't comfortable with my body in the athletic sense. So my athlete, my identity. And so over time I was able to heal that um, through my studies and also through my passion of reconnecting um, with working out and training. Um, and so what I did at uh, undergraduate, I was in a biology um, for D3 school and I was able to transfer through Virginia Tech. Um, and that's where I got my undergrad and master's in nutrition. And so in the U.S., what you're able to do with that, um, if you're an approved accredited undergrad course, you then are able to apply to the Ditech internship. So I was able to get through that and then uh, landed in the Pittsburgh area. And so at also backing up at Virginia Tech, I had the great opportunity to work with the sports dietitian. Um, and Virginia Tech, which was really neat um, as an undergrad and graduate, I was in the fueling station. So a lot of hands-on working with the athletes, which I loved. Mm -hmm. So in that, we also brought in the eating disorder awareness. So the team at Tech, I think, was phenomenal. And they, they, they still are. They, they are. they went from one dietitian plus a graduate to I think they have three to five dietitians on staff. For sports oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really, it was starting to really build. Um, and so I was able to mentor under Jenny that is still the sports dietitian there now. And what um, she had too, they had a sports um, performance team with athletes that were on the disordered eating or concern for eating disorders. And so they actually had the sports psychologist, the sports physician, the dietitian um, doing a team approach. So they would have their in athletic trainers, if they had any cases that they were concerned with, they discussed the, the student athletes care. So I love that team approach. Um, then when I went into my internship, in Pittsburgh, which was a lot of fun, but also you learn what you don't like or doesn't yeah, fit you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So in that internship, I was really able to, you know, get my feet wet with a lot of different avenues that a dietitian could go down and clinical was not for me. Right. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So, which was a lot of fun, great learning experience. Um, but throughout that Dietech internship, I really was able to hone in and realize uh, it was sports nutrition's been my passion. And that's what I wanted to focus on. 
but I also love working with individuals on a one-on-one basis. So um, four days after I graduated the internship, I started um, outpatient, outpatient position, which I'm still in currently. Um, and so that was, that has been a really rewarding experience, but it's also come with a lot of hurdles too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Exactly. Do you work for an, a specific organization or what's your, out- yeah. your outpatient work? Yeah. So my outpatient work is with Excel Health, which is about 30 to 40 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just got a little bit of commute, but there's no traffic. So it's all about your perception. (laughs) But um, you can listen to podcasts along the way. I've listened to yours. So (laughs) (laughs) I did not lead you straight into that. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. And so at what point along the path did you stumble across health at every size? And I'm interested to know whether that's what it was called. Yeah. So I would say it's a hard, it's hard to pinpoint what time that I healed my relationship Mm. with food. I think it was a grad and, and activity level. I think it was a gradual, um, by the time I was in college, um, in triathlon training, I had a phenomenal, when I transferred to Virginia tech, I switched over from, um, running mainly to, to triathlon training. Um, and I had a phenomenal coach who was really balanced. He was, um, really in it for the athlete as a whole, not just for performance. So how was my stress level? Um, how was, uh, I doing, uh, outside of the sport itself? And so that really, I think helped refocus and helped me naturally connect, um, with myself. And so I think that was the healing process. That's the foundation to health at every size recently though, through social media, I'd say as early as last year, um, is when health at every size, I was like, there's a book. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, this is awesome. Like, where has this been the last 15 years? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say it's fairly recent. Yeah. For health at every size. So your experience, um, your later experience doing triathlon, how did that contrast with your early um, adolescent or early collegiate experience experiences and the way that that influenced the way you felt about your body? Yeah. So I think that's a really good question. So a lot of times in especially young female athletes, um, there's a lot of pressure. Um, there's the idealistic body type that you might have in mind. Um, and then I think I took a break from running to, um, just, a would say about like a season off just running when I felt like it versus doing a training session. Mm. And it was very gradual. Um, and so that process of, okay, I'm going to run cause I enjoy the movement versus I'm going to run because I have to, or I should. Mm. Um, yeah. And a lot of times too, um, I think a lot of athletes, especially if you're looking at athletes in general, there's that type more is better. Um, thinner is better. I'll, I transitioned from that to stronger is better. You know, I'm nourishing to flourish. I'm nourishing to um, fuel my body. And that has been a game changer in that it it was so gradual um, that when I got to tech, I was able to transition to the triathlon. You're really able to respect um, the training process you've been through 
um, to improve. And so with that too, um, my training volume actually increased gradually and I had a great, a phenomenal coach. And I think I'm partial to, <laughs> um, I'm partial to the coaching because I was able to babysit his kids and he uh, had, yeah. he, yes, he had yeah. the best kids. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think it's that transitioning to, and also throughout my studies, I'm working, um, in the fueling, uh, station. I'm working with the athletes and seeing the benefit connection mm. of fuel is essential, but also fuel and eating for the soul is just as important. And what I mean by that is that we should be eating pleasure foods. So I didn't have a list of foods that were good or bad, but I recognized that all foods could fit. And so it was funny because I was like looking at some of the stuff and I was like, man, I've been saying to my clients and patients and athletes, like all foods can fit. And then there's this beacon of light of health at every size out there. Yeah. 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 Kind of just, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I definitely think it's a gradual transition and it's also you, if you expect, and even if um, it doesn't matter what level you're at or where you're at, if you're new to an activity, um, it's important to, I think, go through it and, Mm -hmm. and, live live that experience of fueling where you can enjoy activity versus this is another punishment or I am mm-hmm. indirectly under fueling because I don't know the importance or the social structure or culture is kind of stifling uh, how fuel is actually essential. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, especially in athletic settings, there's this real um, underground diet mentality that that it seems to surface in different ways in the athletic setting. So a lot of quite disordered behaviours are very normative within the athletic setting and don't get picked up as possibly red flags for an eating disorder. Um, Or even if it's not a red flag, then something that's not necessarily going to be in the individual's best interest, whether that's physically in terms of performance or whether it's emotionally or in terms of social connection, quality of life. So it is interesting that in the athletic setting, it's almost like a culture. I call it a culture within a culture. So it has certain norms or certain degrees of acceptability around behavior um, that I find really vary from sport to sport. So I'm curious to know what your observations have been. You've been involved in a number of different sports in a number of different athletic settings. So what have you noticed that, you know, pops up in athletic settings? Yes. So I love that culture within a culture. Yeah. And it's, it's like an identity because you have an identity within the culture to fit the social norms of that culture. I feel like, so I've definitely seen that. Um, So where I've seen that too is, it's a lot of because I've been able to have the opportunity um, to run D3 and then to then transition into a collegiate club sport. So mm-hmm. two completely different entities. But then Can within that, you, sorry, yeah. I'm going to ask you, Edie, what is D3? Yeah. So <laughs> in the United States, yeah. So there's division levels. Oh, division. The, okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. 
so I was like I've got no idea what you're talking about (laughs) I love it I love it yeah so I've definitely seen those culture yeah so um I was able to see um of course the the d3 um, at Christopher Newport University but then collegiate club is a lot different at Virginia Tech but then working with the athletes at D1 and seeing that pressure and seeing athletic trainers and also the big scholarships that are at play mm-hmm. yes that can really transition and because a lot of these athletes too um, can be sub elite so they're looking into transitioning potentially if they um, I say survive but if they're able to get through a collegiate four to five year um bring four to five years program yeah because if they're not fueling correctly a lot of times a lot of the school systems can not not all of them and I'm not saying this is everyone's experience but they can eat you up and chew you out uh, especially if you can't handle high volume or you're prone to injury and along to you know being a student athlete so your academic load stress level support system all that has a factor or just not Um, biologically like you you're just not going to be kind of at that at that very, very top level. There's a whole bunch of people that will actually probably 99% of the population for various reasons are just not going to ever make it. And that's one of the um, really difficult things about the athletic setting or about the elite athletic setting is there's this, there's this kind of idea that I think varies from sport to sport that if you want it badly enough, you can make it. And it's like, no, sometimes that's not enough. Like you've actually really got to, you've got to have the talent, you've got to have the genetics, you've got to have um, opportunity, opportunity, the financial support, yep. um, a bit of luck maybe as well. Oh, for sure. And that's, you know? that's part of the culture. I mean, it's that whole, you know, uh, believing here are the cultural norms and within that cultural norms, these athletes have, I've seen, and I, that's why I'm really passionate about working um, with any, any individual across the spectrum of, you know, they're an adolescent just starting sports to someone that maybe um, later in life, their children have gone off to college and they want to pick something up for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you see that transition, you see that change. And a lot of times too, looking at that when you're in the teeth of that and the grip of that, um, a lot of times they don't have any support system to be able to say, um, this isn't healthy for me because health isn't just defined by your performance or how fast your last personal best was or the number of points you've scored. But a lot of times they're getting those messages from their coaches. So now their identity as an athlete is their last best performance. And so then that can transition into how they're fueling indirectly they can feel like they have now pressure to be eating well because they are an athlete because they have done x y and z or there could be a freshman right behind them that could take their spot Mm. and so now they have that extended pressure okay i only have a year left i gotta try and do my best or they're starting to get burnt out and then they're just not getting the enjoyment they did prior and so that has a lot to do within that culture. I just love that analogy you did, that culture within a culture, because I feel like too, within that culture of an athlete, there's that sports specific, I would say, like, uh, cause I've been in multiple 
uh, cultures, I feel like with different with team sport, but I've transitioned more into endurance sports with triathlons and running. Because uh, I remember my coach even saying, "Well, you're you're a runner," and I went, "Well, I've been a I'm a triathlete now." And I was like, "Oh wait, well actually, yeah, I guess I always gravitated to that running, so that was my identity." Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So you see that shift, and a lot of times with collegiate athletes, once they're done their four or five years, you know, they're like, "Okay, see ya." So there's no support system in place. So they're left in this crisis mode. Like what is their identity? Mm. Oh, that's, that's just really tough. I mean, I know that, that a lot of collegiate programs really make efforts to have like transition programs into different, yes. whether it's a study or work or different, different athletic settings, I guess. But the sheer number of people that are coming through these programs must mean that, you know, having that, having those transition kind of support services in place, particularly for vulnerable people who've moved a long mm-hmm. way from home um, and might've, might not have, performed at the level that maybe they were expected to or um, Mm -hmm. by others or themselves so that's got to be yeah just really tough so um I'm curious just to loop back for a second Edie if you don't mind do you mind talking a little bit about what you notice are some of the most common cultural um I guess narratives that could exist within some different sports just from your experience so for example you know what what um, a female soccer player might experience or a male soccer player or um, a runner or a, you know, people from endurance sports or power sports, or can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you notice are some of the most common um, cultural narratives within different sports? Oh yes. Okay. So I'll start with running. Let's start there. Even so I've worked with um, Olympic athletes are athletes that are in Olympic sports and then from team sports to the, the endurance side. Um, and then there's also athletic, aesthetic sports. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So there's, yeah. So when you're looking at runners, which would be considered endurance, there's also triathlons in there. Um, I have a couple of friends that do ultras. And so that's getting up there too in mileage. A lot of the narratives for that. And I think too, that's part of the culture is society says thinner is better and faster. Mm-hmm. Not that, you know, stronger, healthy nourishment is better. So, or not that one thing, I don't like to use the word better, but sustainable. So within that ideal, I'll work and I'll work with anyone from an adolescent um, to someone again in that kind of work setting where they're able to pick up uh, enjoyment or pastime and they have a new community of runners and so they can gravitate to that community and they feel a sense of new identity mm-hmm. sometimes you can get a new identity crisis too i feel like so yeah. that narrative is yeah who am i again yeah yeah like what am i this like imposter syndrome i'm like no you can do this yeah, let's support that by making sure we're fueling properly. But I, a lot of times they'll come to me and they'll be seeking weight loss. They'll be seeking leaner is better. Um, a lot of the adolescents too I'll work with, um, I ask them about their social media handles or how active they are on it. What's their top people they follow, you know, who yeah. inspires them. Yeah. And so then you can kind of, they'll, they'll pull out their phone if they're comfortable and then they'll start showing, you know, this girl does this or this guy um, is the epitome of what I want to aspire to. Mm-hmm. And you know, how, 
how toxic is potentially that message? Oh, yeah, the comparisons. And then mm. you're really relying on this other person to be um, sending messages that are going to be supportive for this young person. And often they're not. Often no. they're, you know, often, often they're missing a whole piece of, you know, they're just showing one picture, um, you know, with a, with a time. You know that classic picture? of like your Garmin watch with a time on it or your runners, yes, yes. Or, you know, yeah. oh my God. And yeah. And those pictures are not, they're not, um, quote unquote, a bad thing in the context mm. of a wider social media presence. Yes. But, oh wow. Okay. So that's actually a really good tip for dietitians, isn't it? Is to maybe mm. ask, your client, whether it's your eating disorder client or whether it's a young athlete, as your your example, get them to show you who they follow. Oh my gosh, I love that tip. That's awesome. It opens up a whole new avenue because if you're looking at the social media usage, that has just skyrocketed. <gasps> yeah, yeah. And if, if you're working with a 16, 18-year-old and you're trying to connect with them, a lot of times them showing you their passion or what they find that they're on their phone, you know, two to five, eight hours a day, depending on some, some studies, if you're looking at them, yeah. like that gives a, a, a little snippet, you know, into what messages they're seeing. Cause all, and that's, that opens up conversation to talk about, okay, so this is in this small snippet. Like I love that garment example you used um, cause I'll post pictures of my garment um, and say like easy run or something. And I try to be aware too of what you're posting of how you can influence someone because it's one little snippet out of a whole life. And it's usually the good stuff. Yes. <laughs> no, exactly. exactly. I mean, particularly for an elite athlete who has, yeah. you know, a, a very big um, social media following, of course, you're, you're an influence. Yeah. 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 So sometimes too, I've noticed some of even the elite, um, Athletes will 100% have an influence, but also some individuals um, who are influencers. So they have a, a larger social media presence. So they might be, um, for example, able to work out in the where they're at in their life a lot more than might be sustainable to someone that's just starting out running oh, yeah. mm -hmm. or I'll get a lot of comparisons. Yeah. With this individual, you know, that she's going to be joining a team, for example, or a guy's going to be joining a team and the friends or the circle he's raced against, he's seen what they're doing. Oh yeah. He's coming back from an injury. Right. And so it's like, it's a lot of negative um, internal dialogue that he's yeah. not good enough or she's not good enough because this individual is doing X, Y, and Z. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there's that kind of, um, not only, um, external comparison, but mm -hmm. then also, um, often athletes then compare themselves to their past selves as well. So, yes. you know, I, I used to be able to, to do this. Now I, I can't do it or, or I should be able to I should be improving by now and then do you do you often find Edie that athletes are more likely to to find a, a kind of a culprit so to speak in their body composition as mm -hmm. opposed to their fueling so they're more likely to say well I need to lose body fat or I need to be leaner or lighter rather than oh maybe my fatigue 
um, or maybe my lack of speed or power da, 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 is because I'm not feeling properly. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think that comparison, and it, it can be, I think, in more to, more so of the aesthetic, um, endurance, and then the sports with like rowing and wrestling where there's a number on the scale that they ha- have to yeah. hit a classification. Yeah. Weight class. I think it can, you can see a hundred percent increase or not a hundred percent, but you can see a larger increase in that for sure. Cause it's that connection of, okay, so I have to be a certain composition from this influencer on social media or idolizing, um, uh, elite athlete body type, but they're only seeing the filtered or yes. the, yeah, the body positions that look good. They didn't understand that that was the 100th shot or that person was having a bad day or, you know, our bodies don't look that way when mm-hmm. we're in movement. Mm-hmm. So it was a stage photo, but they're seeing all these hundreds and hundreds of messages um, that are telling them, okay, leaner is better, thinner is better. Um, fueling, I think that's a huge one too. Uh, some sports, I'll see a little bit more of this, but recently um, I've seen a lot of my power sports to the macro counting and also <gasps> in running. Yes. So yeah, so. <laughs> oh, in running as well. Yeah, I see macro counting and running. That was usually oh. a couple of years more in bodybuilding or figure yes. competition. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it recently, and I think it was more so related to the there was, there was a whole thirty like diet that was mm-hmm. going around that was popular with some of my athletes, and it was just not fueling them enough or nourishing them enough. And they're coming out thirty days later, um, loss of muscle mass. I mean, fatigued, kind of like really broken down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not enjoying. Yeah, because they're not enjoying the foods. Um, that they would naturally be able to enjoy if they didn't have these restrictions. Yeah. So, oh my god, it drives me so crazy. This mm-hmm. mac- macro counting drives me crazy. Um, yes. so, I mean, when I get when I get um, uh, when I get athletes who want me to help them macro count, I'm like, yeah, yeah wrong person, <laughs> wrong person. <laughs> if you if you want to transition away from macro counting to more intuitive eating, performance and fuel based fueling based eating like sport proper kind of sports nutrition oh i'm your gal but yeah macro counting just sends my face to the desk oh it makes me so mad and you get it oh my god yes it's another diet hidden another diet hidden um on the guys that you can eat whatever you want within these macros that's still a diet (laughs) that's not that's not going to help you as an athlete not help you as a person not help you as an individual. So mm. yeah, it, it just gets my blood boiling. So, well, I think what it does is, is it perpetuates this idea that already exists within the athletic setting that if I do everything quote unquote correctly, then I will get a certain performance outcome. And you and I know that mm-hmm. that's not the case. It's just, you know, that that anything can happen in any training session and in any kind of competition where things don't necessarily work out the way that we, we would wish. And sports nutrition is actually a really, really young science. I mean, nutrition is for a start, but then sports and performance nutrition is even younger. And um, I know I'm kind of, I've, I've been doing 
this for longer than you. And honestly, um, by that, what I mean is that I've seen so much change. I've seen so much change from when I was a first sports dietitian to now. I'm like, wow, our recommendations have changed and we've kind of held things lightly in so many ways that, you know, for you, when you're, 15 20 years down the track like like yeah. old me then <laughs> yeah i'm coming up on four i'm coming up yeah i've been, I've been okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, cool. i'm an athlete longer than i've been in nutrition so oh, i definitely got so much experience yeah. my god yeah <laughs> so i 100 percent agree with you i remember looking up um back in undergrad i think the number of sports dietitians in the collegiate and professional setting in the United States. I think it was like four, 405. Um, and so I was looking at that number. I think it's over 600 now. Oh, that's with, so right. With the, yeah. The CSSD. So the board certified sports specialist. Uh, so that's phenomenal. So I can a hundred percent like relate with what you've seen. I, oh, yeah, I just can't imagine like five years, 10 years from now. Well, yeah, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a really good lesson for us, especially as professionals, not only as humans and, and yourself as an athlete yourself, to just to hold things lightly and, um, you know, that even, that even research doesn't quote unquote prove anything. It provides us with some evidence for some interventions mm-hmm. or some ways of doing things that work for some people in some situations, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how they, you know, really, you know, when we have quote unquote evidence and I see that it has like a 30% effectiveness, I'm like, What? that's our evidence. I mean, it happens as we know, Edie, it happens a lot in eating disorders where a certain treatment, um, some treatment protocol has a really quite a low Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of quote unquote success or, you know, um, it's like, Oh my God, no. (laughs) So yeah, you're looking at like a five to what? 25% increase and and you're still going to go with the treatment protocol (laughs) let's take a step back and yeah 100% agree so and with that too it just gets so I think people get caught up in what's new um this has to be scientific and a lot of times I want to get you um get your opinion on this too if you've seen this happening it'll be well my friend did within, I think that narrative you're talking about, my friend did X, Y, and Z from his trainer or his coach. The new supplement just came out and now he, you know, um, ran his personal best or he won his match. And I just go, (laughs) so eating broccoli, only broccoli all day does not sound like a good idea. (laughs) Right. And there was a lot of factors that probably went into your, to that. Uh, you know, having a really great performance or running a really great time or shooting, mm. shooting, you know, um, three goals where, he, you know, and that broke his record for the season or whatever. Right. Or he got do... the, the seventh position on the team that got him able right. to. Yeah. Exactly. And I, don't, I don't know about you, but the recently, I've seen the last two years a lot. It got really popular, intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. So restricting for eight to 12 to 20 hours while being active. And there were some studies when I was looking at it too. One of the studies that I had a client try and cite, um, cause they're very, they're into the research and 
looking at it, it was based off of individuals that, this was a while ago, they did um, leg extensions. So they only moved one large muscle to their leg. They Mm -hmm. just moved that and they looked at the glycogen load um, with individuals that fasted and that were also in a non-fasted state. And so Mm -hmm. the ones that were in a um, non-fasted state utilized more, I'd say, I think they utilized more carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. of course, because they had it available. Well, the ones that were in a fasted state used more um, fat-free or or fatty acids. And of course that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. they didn't eat anything. If you look at the large context, you're not going to only use your one leg for a 90 minute, you know, soccer game uh, (laughs) or to do a layup. Uh, You're going to use your whole body. And so it was completely inappropriate. But the message that athlete took away was I can do intermittent fasting and I'll see more fat burning. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think that as I, I, I really, really appreciate um, sports science. I, I think mm-hmm. that sports scientists are underrated in so many different ways. But I think one of the ways in which sports science hasn't helped is really the perpetuating of this idea that anything new is great. You know, it's the 1%. Mm-hmm. The, that kind of one percenter type of mentality that if I can just get this, if I can just get that one percent and from an athlete, particularly when we're talking, you know, um, you know, fast times or fast or, 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 you know, heavy weights or something, I, I get logically that one percent can make a difference, but I think that's where athletes can get really drawn into this idea of, of, looking at the minute of sports Mm. science and neglecting the overall picture, like neglecting the basics. Yes. Like if their perform, as I see it, if their performance um, leads to problems that goes into, that's affecting their not only physiological load, but I also think of it as a psychological load. So the activities that they're doing that excludes pleasure items or self-care to get that 1% performance increase, really what I try to work with a lot with my athletes is bringing it back into, okay, so how does that do overall for your whole wellness, which includes your psychological and your physical? If there's a negative to, to your psychological, a lot of times that's hushed or I think swept under the rug (laughs) or not addressed. And uh, I have a really good leading into that. I was listening to a podcast uh, recently and it had Desi Linden, who's a phenomenal, I think she's one of the old time greats and she's, she's going to be at Boston. So hopefully I I get to track her down, but um, (laughs) so yeah, so she's an elite runner. She's, she's been to the Olympics. She, she's been in the game and she's been at that elite level. And when she was asked the question, cause she, she's a, a whiskey enthusiast, nice. uh, self-proclaimed. Yes. Um, the podcaster asked her, you know, do you cut out or do you, when you have to start eating clean for training? Um, she said it so well in that if you're cutting out things that make you happy or that you enjoy, then there's something fundamentally like wrong with the situation like you're not going to cut this out and say okay I'm not gonna drink any whiskey until after Boston 
uh, that that can't be. And she just said, so, wow. She's like, that can't be healthy for you. Oh, so, I love that. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, because, I mean, what, what she's really speaking to is this idea that um, I should be doing things in a certain way, like the body as temple type of mentality. Um, and what she illustrates so beautifully is that actually a, a large part of our well-being is being able to um, care for ourselves and, you know, and compassionate care includes pleasure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Being able to enjoy. Um, I love cupcakes. So anytime I go to a new place, I yes. search out. Yeah. I search I out either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's either cupcakes or ice cream. I love, I call them, I, well, I just call it anything like a gourmet cupcake. Like if I go to a place I want um, to try out their cupcakes or a place that's recommended. So any new city. And that's what's the neat thing with being able to go to different cities. Um, you're able to race and enjoy, you know, new experiences and not just the city or the place you're at or new roads, um, but also the culture that's there, the food culture. So then, yeah. So you're able to enjoy all these foods without going, okay, like, well, <laughs> yeah. this isn't deemed, you know, sport appropriate, or this isn't, um, a good or good food when there should be no good or bad foods. I mean, all foods fit, so I, I remember once I was at, and this was, I was working with a postdoc fellow and she had come back and we went to a, it was $5 at Virginia Tech, all, all, all you could eat um, pizza. And then also uh, you got several drinks, beer. And so then she had made a comment. Um, she's like, oh, I'm surprised you're eating pizza. And I was just like, what? Like, of course Why? I'm eating pizza. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I paid $5. Like I'm going to enjoy this pizza. Uh, it was, it's, so it's like items like that where people will go, Oh, you know, like I thought that wasn't good or healthy for your performance. Right. So kind of making assumptions about the identity that you fit into. Mm -hmm. Whereas you related to a different identity. You were like, no, no, I am an athlete who also enjoys pizza. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I work with athletes too that are injured or that are going through that yeah. transitional period of um, starting a new job or um, not f finding. And that's where I want to be there for. I guess what I'm trying to say is if they as an athlete want to conclude their career or focus on, you know, um, other items in their life that are just as important, that's phenomenal. I'm there for them to help them transition into potentially creating that positive relationship with food that they did not have prior, yeah. um, which is often neglected by the treatment team or, you know, because they've just been through the process. So they're at a different stage of life. It's just as important to be able to enjoy that cupcake. Um, if you did identify as athlete or if you didn't. Yeah, totally, totally. And the, interestingly, the incidence of, um, disordered eating and eating disorders actually really high post, um, po post kind of peak athleticism, like post career. Yes. It's really high. Do you see that a lot, Adi? I do. I do. So I'll see a lot if they had potentially too like a disordered eating um, prior. I see it spike. I feel like post-collegiate or if they're kind of that in that midlife and um, they're finding where they were looking what they were doing prior. And so a lot of times my patients and clients will recount 
anywhere from five to 10 years. And the way they talk about it is just yesterday. So it's a lot you have to kind of shift through. Mm, Yeah. Do do you often have um, athlete clients or, or previously athlete clients who were kind of child and adolescent athletes as well? Because that's a long time to be involved in, you know, as you and I have kind of mm-hmm. um, have kind of described, you know, a, a, a culture like this a, a long time. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely have. I'd say clients that have been, you know, athletes from adolescence, and also ones that have recently joined. So um, I'd say it's like probably half and half. When I'm working in a collegiate setting, because I'll I'll do um, I'll I'll do I'll work with uh, Carnegie Mellon athletes. And their, their athletic team is phenomenal. The head athletic trainer is amazing. So we have a great collaboration. Um, all, of course, those athletes have been doing it since they've been from a young age. And a lot of them, too, will be international. Um, so then you're getting with that. Yeah, so like far from home. Um, we're looking at, you know, recipes that they can resonate with, but also Ooh, they can make. And, so yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah, so that's why I look into with anyone that has transferred or incoming freshmen, um, how many international students. It's just as important to consider um, when you're looking at that, too. And we do a lot of, I just love, I'm not the best cook, but I love making recipes that that taste good, but then also enhance um, your experience with the activity you're doing. So fueling to help support them a lot of times they're in you know a dorm room and they only have a microwave and a fridge in their meal plan so a lot of these recipes are something quick that they can do with microwave and having that fridge available yeah that's so creative that's amazing and that's that's one of the blessings of sports and performance uh, nutrition is that you are invited to get really creative um, the culture with people's cultural background um, to take that into account. Um, yes. Budgets as well. A lot of athletes living away from home, they don't have a lot of money. So no, you know, they don't. Yeah. So the budget goes in a lot to that. And that's where it's a huge opportunity to be able to, when, when I'm talking with them is coming from a performance side in conjunction with looking at their capacity to take self-care. So what they have available to take care of themselves with where they're at, that's just as important. So making sure that they're able to acknowledge, you know, what resources they have and also go through some of the society and cultural um, pressures that can be put on them um, that will not I think help with themselves as being a human being and also asking their bodies to do certain activities. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. That was so beautifully described. So do you think um, that's how you have been able to bring together health at every size and um, intuitive eating kind of principles and sports nutrition? Cause I'm sure you get, I, I get this question a lot as mm. in oh you you work in you know your health you name yourself as a you know non-diet dietitian mm-hmm. how do these principles possibly match with sports nutrition and a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and I'm like it's not that like it's not yeah that <laughs> so give it you know, give us your ideas about how you kind of bring the two together in a way that you know you hope makes sense for for the people you work with 
Oh my gosh. I love this question, but it's a load of questions. <laughs> yeah. I, sorry. Oh, you're fine. I love it. Um, the, I think I did my own, I did my own work in leading into how I saw myself, um, and how I reestablished, I think a positive relationship with food, but also with activity. So when someone says, Oh, I have to exercise or I have to do this. Um, I do it if, if I'm able to, if I'm able bodied, if I'm enjoying it. And also I think it's been since I've been able to do that healing process, that work, um, it flowed right into health at every size. Initially you're looking at health at every size. You're it's that question right there. You know, how does this work? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm already doing it. Like I'm already living it. Um, so it's definitely, I feel like it's in conjunction. If you are a sports dietitian, you should have or seek experience with working with eating disorders. Um, but then also if you're working with eating disorders too, health at every size intuitive eating, I think is the main um, principle that should be utilized for the healing process. Um, Amen. That's, Amen. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> so as a sports dietitian, you should do no harm. So if you're going to do no harm, you have to look at the whole principle of you can be an athlete. You can be an individual that is also not an athlete and you want to be able to experience pleasure and joy from food. Um, and be able to not look at food as um, good or bad or have set rules because as an athlete knows, um, rules don't always apply when there's different situations um, such as you have a bad race or you, your team is down by two and it's in not ideal conditions. Um, there's just so many different scenarios that if we have a set rule that we deviate from, say you get injured um, and you're at your best friend's birthday party, and you deviate from that rule and you have that, going back to that cupcake, you have that cupcake and now you are a worse individual. Mm. So if you're working, yeah, if you're working with an athlete, a lot of that comes into play, you know, not just how they're performing. I want to know how their life is, how are their social interactions and usually social interactions, some, some time point, it's going to be surrounded with food. And can they enjoy that experience? Yeah. And not to be caught up in that. Yeah. And so that's the health at every size. So you're able to be in your body um, and enjoy the food and movement that you're able to. Yeah, I love that. That's so beautiful. So being able to, to participate plus then being able to enjoy, um, you know, quote unquote, normal human interactions, you know, mm -hmm. in, in social setting and um being able to try different foods without knowing the calorie value or the macro count or yes. whatever <laughs> so yeah so it's kind of taking the stress out of the micro so to speak mm -hmm. the micro decisions and more taking a look at the overall picture including quality of life and including connectedness and and yeah i just love how you explained that that was that was really amazing so one conundrum or dilemma that often is presented to us is when athletes might be for example in weight classes or mm. you know or they mm -hmm. um 
or there are, I, I don't agree with this by the way, but there might be body composition demands that are being, that have been set. Um, by, like biomechanical advantages, like. Right, right. Or they like might say, or you have to, yeah, they might have, or you might have to have a certain um, level of skin fold, for example, to mm. be, to be um, put on the team or whatever. I don't agree with yeah. that. You know, Ugh, I, yeah, I can't change the world overnight. <laughs> yeah, no, but one day at a time. <laughs> one day at a time. So I'm curious to know a little bit, or a little bit about your tips for maybe dietitians who are listening who might be faced with some of these very real dilemmas. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of the clients too, and the athletes will be coming in and going, "I need to lose." X, Y, and Z to perform a certain way, or I need to gain um, yes. X, Y, and Z to be able to perform or make the team. Um, and for those dietitians too, it's essential that when we're working with clients to, to do no harm. So if we have someone to, that is unintentionally um, or intentionally having low energy available, so they're not taking in either enough energy intake, and when I refer to energy, the calories, but calories give you energy. So it's, I always call it like energy intake. Um, yeah, then yeah. It can, yeah. So it can still, to me, be like a trigger for effects, like a waterfall effect of physiologically and also the, the psychological component because um, that's a huge component that's often underlooked, which can then lead to potentially disordered eating or eating disorders, yes. especially in the athletic yep. population. Yeah. So you could have an individual work with them to lose weight and said individual does that. They just see the number on the scale. They don't, uh, they don't, they're taking that number and now they're having an out-of-body experience I feel like with that number yeah, and they don't true. have yeah they're not in the movement so they're not connected to their body and this, this doesn't happen to everyone but uh, if we're if we're focusing on certain skin folds or performance level based off those skin folds you're not taking into account someone's genetics yeah, you know what their body's able to do for them, and then also eventually too. If we're restricting, and restricting can also be in the form of we only eat clean foods. And when I hear clean foods, I think of okay, you washed your food for the day. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want, always get that. Yeah. Down. yeah, yeah. Like you took your bowl of cereal and you rinsed it. Okay, yeah. that's a different way to Love eat it. it but, yeah. yeah. So, but. <laughs> When they feel like they're um, eating clean foods, they might be restricting, you know, their grandmother's favorite biscuit recipe or dairy because dairy will slow them down what's in their mind or what they have seen others individuals do. Right, right. And so then that just leads again to that negative calorie energy intake and also that psychological component. Yeah, so. yeah, kind of um, emotional restriction, restriction, restricting ourselves from yeah. life, life quality. Yeah, you know? that's huge mm-hmm. satisfaction. So mm-hmm. being able to, yeah, enjoy food, but also enjoy the eating experience. Yeah. Um, I use the car. I know this is overused, but I love the car analogy for my athletes. So I'm trying to break down because you need with sports nutrition, especially with sports dietitians, breaking it down. There is nutrition information, but there is also being human and having that social interaction and be able to function um, and enjoy enjoy um, 
the lived experience you're having if you're able to. And so with the car analogy, a lot of times they'll say carbs is your um, gas in the tank. So it fuels your muscles, right? And so you've heard this one too, probably. Yeah, then, yeah, I love it. Yeah, so you need, and then that's all forms of carbs. And so it could be the Pop-Tart, the candy bar, the cupcake, the quinoa um, to the whole grain bread, right? But I like to take it a step further. And so when I'm working with my athletes, we'll have like the little car out. And I always say, think of your favorite color and you're that hot, um, sexy, you know, whatever, um, sports car. And then what you're going to do is think of the gas in the tank as your gasoline. So that's going to be your carbohydrates. But the protein in the car tire is going to be the car tire so that continuously turns around um yeah and the fat is the essential essential part of the car so a lot of times fat will try to be cut out or limited and that fat is your shell it protects you so if you're in the summer and you don't have a windshield (laughs) you'll get hit in the face with bugs yeah so then looking at the when you're in the car and say, cause I know we were talking, um, that you could be in a warmer client, you could climb it, you could be in winter and it's snowing out a lot of times. So we can't control, you know, everything outside. So external factors. Um, and so say it is extra cold or extra hot outside and your air conditioner breaks, uh, you still have to get to your destination. So that that's being human. So we're unable to control everything around us, but being able to, you know, enjoy foods and not have food rules is being able to control our, or not control, but fluid. So if it's hot outside, you're able to increase the AC. Yeah. You're able to listen to your body's signal saying, Hey, you know, I think I do want a treat or I think I do not a treat, but I think I do want this food item. I have this um, urge to have it. So I'm going to be able to enjoy it. Or if it gets cold, you can start to turn up the heat. Right. So I love that. You know, the reason why I think um, well, for a start, storytelling and analogies is so powerful for people and athletes in particular, mm-hmm. you're spot on. They love examples and giving very practical examples. They really get it, you know, mm-hmm. mechanical, mechanical stuff they really kind of get. Um, yeah. The other thing about what I really appreciate about, about what you just said is that it's an invitation to turn in and stay connected to the body. What does my body need when? How much does it need? What helps me feel good? What helps me um, keep my energy levels up? What deals with fatigue? What helps me stay well hydrated? You know, um, when is it helpful for me to do, for example, meal planning? And when is it not so helpful for me? Um, what do I know about myself? What do I know about myself culturally, about my vulnerabilities? You know, you might come, an athlete might come from a family where there's a lot of mental health, maybe, um, yes. mental health issues. And so being able to understand our own vulnerabilities really helps us to be able to support our athletes to be able to stay tuned in and stay connected because to find that in some in some cases not everybody but in some mm-hmm. cases there is a real tendency to switch off and avoid and disconnect you know and the body is like a machine as opposed to um like real human with organs <laughs> etc <cetera. laughs> 
hundred percent. Yeah, because we can't control the we can't control the the weather. So if we're not listening, yeah, to our internal cues, then oh, I agree, a hundred percent. So you're listening to that because you're your number one expert of your body. Absolutely, and I think if I could, mm-hmm. one other thing that I have heard, who did I hear say at the Aussie Ballet? Um, oh, I know. So we, our psychologist um, mm-hmm. at the Aussie Ballet, she speaks a lot about um, about um, attending attending to our needs and see and being able to. She really encourages the students and the dancers to stay tuned in so that we notice so that we notice as things are shifting. So for example, Mm. if we're sore, that we're then able to take care of ourselves by presenting to to physio or to the doctor, or um, if we're noticing that we're um, increasingly becoming fatigued, then we can do something about that rather than um, rather than ignoring it or rather yes. than becoming so disconnected and avoidant that we then don't even deal with something that inevitably, well, in most situations, this gets worse and worse. So she speaks about that a lot and that's really taught me about, um, about how to you know, send those messages to my students and to the to the dancers and to the athletes I work with about, you know, the benefits of staying tuned in um, and, you know, how that helps us holistically, not just in terms of injury prevention, but also, you know, fatigue and fueling and how, how is my body feeling? And that is really important. Oh, it's huge. I love, loved the way you said that because it's, it's like giving yourself that permission to accept yourself regardless of X, Y, and Z, but of how you are. Cause you're able to take in that information and go, this is what I need at the moment. Mm-hmm. Just for now. I love that expression. Mm-hmm. Just for now. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's yeah. like, just for now. And yes. again, you know, athletes can be kind of prone to, you know, look into the future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the next goal? What's my next target? What's my next, you know? Instead of being in the moment of being able to, a lot of times you'll hear like, oh, I just got to get through this training cycle. I just got to get through this segment or this rehearsal. And it's actually, you know, how much enjoyment or pleasure are they getting from that? So they're continuously seeking more once they get their mm-hmm. goal. Mm-hmm. What's left for them? Mm-hmm completely agree hundred percent yeah so you know being able to just really take care of ourselves you know just for now what do I need to um, to address this fatigue Um, you know just for now how can I work on my hydration you know or you know whatever the particular whatever the particular um, thing that pops up is Um, we could just talk well do you know what Edie the the fact (laughs) is that we have in the past talked for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours <laughs> which is ideal <laughs> which is ideal in an ideal yeah. world this would be fantastic yeah. um yeah. so um i know you are um you're very generous across social media um and you've got lots of stuff that you share so so tell us a little bit about where people can track you down yeah so you can find me on instagram i'm at speedy edrd um, and then you can find me on Facebook too. And so those are two places to be able to track me down <laughs> of other social media handles. I'm not as active. So, uh, those would be the two good places for sure. So send me messages. Um, I'd love to connect. Um, 
so I just, we could talk about this for so, so long. <laughs> I, know. I know there's yeah. quite a, there's quite a bit of work to be done. Isn't there really in the sports mm. setting, you know, to try to bring different areas together. So health at every size. Yes. You know, diet approach, mindfulness, ah, yeah. performance, so much stuff. <laughs> yeah. You're looking at that performance and they're going, okay. Cause there's so, there's a lot of evidence-based research, which is, great in the athletic setting, but then it just gives you a hard number when you're not taking into oh, yes. account. Yeah. That athletes life, their likes, dislikes. I want to know their history, their relationships, um, where they're at, what they see, um, themselves enjoying, oh, um, you know, yeah. yep. not just now, like what they enjoy now as they're with their peers, but what they see themselves enjoying in the future potentially. So in other words, you're seeing them as a human being. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just a number or looking for a performance or, yeah. I think yeah. that's why a lot of athletes, too, it's ingrained, like looking for something they can quantify or be able yeah, to put so into true. results. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. They've kind of become a machine rather yes. than a person. Yeah, I see that. that has ups and downs. Yeah, that healing and that rest is just as important. That's when we actually do our recovery and yep. processing versus the the movement or the activity or the training session. Yeah, so not just about the doing, but also the being. Yes. Yeah. Oh, high fives across the world from Melbourne to Pittsburgh. <laughs> I love it. So wonderful to chat to you, Edie. Thank you so much for giving us your time so, so generously. And it was just such a pleasure to chat. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Fee. You're so welcome. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.